Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket, a podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try for free at LogRocket.com today. My name is Paul, and joined with us is Derek Stoli. Derek is a principal software engineer over at GitHub, and we're going to be talking a little bit about Git 2.41 and some of the recent blog posts about packed object storage, commit history, and the ways that Git actually stores data on your file system, and then getting a little bit into Scalar and talking about how Git fits in with monorepos in larger projects. Welcome to the podcast, Derek. Thanks for having me, Paul. So you joined us back in 2022, and we had you on talking about Git a little bit. But just for people who didn't tune into that episode, could you tell us in your words who you are and what you do with Git? I'm a software engineer, and I've worn many hats in my life. I used to be a mathematician doing research math, but then I switched to software engineering, and I've been doing Git-related things ever since. I did a little bit of server-side things. I've been doing client things and a little bit back to server-side now. But a big chunk of that has been contributing to the open-source Git project, a lot of the performance things we really need for the client side to really scale to monorepo. So a lot of it was very focused on when I was at Microsoft, focusing on the Microsoft Windows and Microsoft Office monorepos and making sure we could scale Git's operations to handle those giant repos, like so much bigger than anything in the public open source world. But then just trying to make sure that also those gains we make for those large repos are as easy for regular Git users to access and have them enabled by default when possible, or at least easy to get to when it can't be on by default. Do you feel like the things you studied being a mathematician drew you into this sector of computer science? I was actually a specialist where I did computational math. I did computational approaches to like pure graph theory problems. This idea of graph theory is going to be a common theme in our discussion about underneath the hood, Git is a graph. And that's part of the reason why I got involved in Git at the first place is that you know, I was hired because of my graph theory skills to solve a specific graph problem uh, that Azure DevOps was having with commit history. But then it kind of expanded out from there to figure out all these other things. And I'm very attracted to problems that can be solved from the very bare bones, right? Like working in C and dealing with data structures that we have to write to disk and read from a memory map. That's something that's really exciting to me and I really love to be a part of. It's so rare that we get to do something like that as opposed to having an abstraction layer of a database on top. I'm actually in the nitty gritty, making sure like, where's the data going? How can we compress it? Where do we need to not compress it? Can we restructure it? Can we iterate it over differently and all of that? It's just really something that works with my skill set, works with the way my brain works. And it's just really exciting to work on. I think it's interesting that you bring up, you know, there's no database layer on top. And I'll segue into you talking about some of the blog posts you put out. So Derek, he has a series of Git internals about how Git works. And they're fantastic if you want to learn a little bit about maybe it's your first time stepping into the Git internals. Fantastic blog post. But in one of the posts, packed object storage, you mentioned we're essentially working with a database here. Git is a database. Mm -hmm. So how does that compare to like a typical database that somebody might think about like your average web developer i'm reaching for sqlite right that's a file systems act right database could you paint that picture for us so the biggest thing i wanted to get across with this blog post was that you know a lot of us developers understand certain things about databases even if we're not building databases ourselves we're running queries and we need to know how that data is structured and the performance of those queries and if we 
build our database schema incorrectly or we change our queries to be poorly structured, our database will perform poorly. And I want to take that kind of perspective. If you learn a little bit about your database and you ask it the right questions, you can do really cool things and really scalable things. Let's apply that kind of perspective into Git and think about what's going on underneath the hood as much as you would say, I need to know how my SQL table has indexes so these queries will go quickly. And so that was kind of the goal I was trying to reach. And the first one in particular, it says like all of your Git data is essentially two tables. If you think about it as a database, you've got your refs, which go from plain text names that are human readable to the 40 hex character SHA-1 values. And then that points into your object store, which you take those hashes to their contents. The hashes are predictable to content addressable data store. If I have this 40 hex string, I can go and say, which object is that? And it's just going to be essentially a document that Git then parses and says, oh, I can see this is a commit. I've got my commit message here. I've got my other parents. I've got my root tree. And the refs give us pointers into that object store, which is then a graph that refers within to itself. If I want to go look at the readme for the Git repository, I go to GitHub and I load the page. It says, oh, okay, default branch is master. Let's go look that up in the ref storage. It's pointing to commit ABC. Let's go look at that object. Okay, it's got this message. It's got a root tree, which is describing its root directory. Let me go look up that by its object ID in the object store, pull its contents. It's got a list of paths that are all the different subtrees and paths at that thing. And I can find which one is readme.md that's pointing to an object go point to that and it's just going to be the file contents of readme.md. So I can go through this really step by from a ref to a commit to a tree to a blob. And that all needs to happen really fast in order to be able to serve that content. And then think about that at larger scale where you're saying, oh, I want to check out something. And I need to go and walk all the trees and find all the blobs and put them onto disk, right? When you're doing an initial clone. And all these things about what exactly is happening under the hood is really helpful to be helping you understand why would get slowed down in these cases, or even simple things like, hey, when I do a rebase, why do my commit IDs change? Changing the contents of the commits is the basic thing. And so their hashes, of course, are going to change. And so you got to think about it as I'm not editing a commit, I'm making a new one that looks like that old one with some differentiation. And so that's the kind of introduction to those internals I really wanted to get across. That shed some great light for me at least like learning about the verbiage you use to describe the different abstractions we got blobs we got refs modeling it in the sense of a database definitely feels a bit natural and it's an ergonomic way to like actually digest that idea for people that don't know what happens when you check out i'm just curious where does that data live on disk under the hood if we want to dive under the hood Mm -hmm. real quick because it's not in my current directory So your working directory is all the files that have been checked out and decompressed in all the different ways into actually saying, this is just what I could build from this to make my final application. But inside of your working directory, there's a hidden directory called .git. And that's where all of the internal data of Git is stored. It's in a .directory, so it's hidden from view by default. But if you go and look at it, you can find it. And inside there, there's a directory called refs, which stores all the reference names and things like that. There's also a directory called objects, and that's where your object store is. At the very base level, I say, oh, I'm going to add this readme file, this new version of my readme file. I'm going to use git add to stage it. It's going to say, okay, let me take that content. Let me hash it. I've got a new object ID. I see it that I don't have that already. Let me create what's called a loose object. And so inside .git slash objects, it takes the first two hex characters, makes a directory, and then the other 38 makes a file inside that directory and then writes the compressed contents using just zlib compression. 
And that's a very simple way of saying, okay, I've got my file on disk and I have now stored it somewhere. And there's also bookkeeping pointing to it. But if every single object I had was stored in this loose way, the two character directory, there's only 256 of those. So you're going to start getting a huge wide directories full of a ton of files and it's going to slow down. And so the next thing that Git does is say, oh, I've got enough loose objects. Let me collect them into what's called a pack file, which at the very basic things, you could think of those loose objects just concatenated together. So they're compressed and stuck together into one file. And then there's another file that's called the pack index that essentially says, oh, I want to look up this object ID. I've got a sorted list of object IDs and pointers into that pack file to say, where do you go get the start of that file? And you can do that. And so you kind of get this feel like, oh, the pack file is like a table of data but I'd have to scan it linearly if I was looking for it and also check all these hashes, but I could just look at the pack index and quickly navigate to the object. There's some extra benefits that happen when you go into the packed store. Git's designed for source code. It's designed for people working on these files and editing a few lines at a time. They're not really saying, oh, this file has absolutely nothing to do with the previous version. And in that case, we can actually store a delta, which is essentially a diff from the previous file that says, okay, I'm going to take this content from the previous file, this initial segment, I'm going to change these lines, and then I'm going to take the rest of the content from the file and a combination of those kinds of instructions to uncompress the file from the previous version. And that allows you to take 100 different versions of the same file, where they share a lot of content and like really reuse that shared content over and over again. And so when you're doing a clone, yes, you're downloading every single version of every file that's ever existed in that repository, but they're compressed in such a way that you're able to not download as if you had just done a bunch of snapshots. And so you're really saving a lot of time and effort. And on the fly, Git is decompressing these things really quickly. It's not needing to do a lot. It's because the disk cost is so much more expensive than the in-memory and CPU cost of doing that. So it's really nice to have. It saves us both space and time for the reader. Now, computing those deltas is kind of expensive. And that's one of the challenges we have at GitHub as server maintainers to make sure that those things can be computed at a reasonable amount of time and keep it nice. But as far as the client's concerned, it's generally doing a decent job of just reading it really quickly and then taking what the server gave it. I mean, you certainly seem like you have a very good handle on everything because we learned about a huge amount of git internals right now i mean the pack files is interesting to me i've certainly looked in the dot git directory and wondered what was hanging out in there thank you for shedding some light on that at a higher level do you ever look at the product that you and the team have built and think i wonder if people use it for something other than file storage you know when you describe to me i'm having these instructions of changing from one step state to the other state i'm thinking about like database migrations. Wait, have you seen this out in the wild? Do you hope to see it? Do you never hope to see it? <laughs> I think Git is a very specific tool that's really good at what it's built for, which is, again, managing multiple versions of human-generated text content. That's like the, all these things fit into that, right? I mentioned Delta compressions, the idea that a human has gone in and edited a few lines or added a few lines. They're not really writing 100 megabytes of data that's meaningful in one go. You'll eventually get there with some files or with combinations of files, but it's always these small contributions at small points in time. And when I find people using Git in weird ways, those are the kinds of problems we see where, oh, I'm going to start checking in my computer-generated config file that has a really compressed view, or it's got a JSON file that's all one line as opposed to like some format, and all the contents look completely different each time or I'm storing log data 
And so every second I'm committing some new lines to a, a file. And so, yeah, those things Delta compress well, but there's so many of them that it becomes unmanageable for Git to be the thing that is actually tracking all those versions. And so it, it's like making sure that if you're going to do something different than human generated source code, that you know where those limits are and what kind of effect it will have. One of the biggest things we have is that game developers have a lot of trouble using Git because they want to use these large binary assets for their art. And they want to have that co-located with their code. And these binary assets change completely every time. They're not source code. They're human generated. Artists are doing this work to create it, but they're essentially stored in a compressed manner that can't actually do any of this delta compression. So it's storing a full copy of it every time you change it. And that's just not what Git's built for. And your pack files start to get filled up with these really giant chunks that are just these images. And like the other pieces that Git needs to be performant is actually being fragmented across the pack file. It's a big reason why a tool like Git LFS exists to essentially let you have it all inside your repository, but the big binaries are being stored at a thing that's okay to say, I care about this version when I care about it, not all the time. And you can go download it separately and store it in a different place. So that's one of the ideas. Hey, where this breaks down, there's maybe a tool out there that helps you extend out to do something different. Well, we're about to dive a little bit deeper into the topic of efficiency and some new features of Git. Right before we do that, I just want to remind our listeners that this podcast is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket can help you find and surface errors faster in your web application so you can spend more time building a great app and less time debugging and digging through the console. Several different features, such as tracking what your user are doing in real time, discovering hidden traps with the powers of AI to find patterns and meaningful statistics to help your developers. Head over to logrocket.com today to try it for free. So Derek, we have Git 2.41 mm-hmm. coming out. So that's Git 2.41. For those who are wondering, is it 4.1? No, it's, it's 2.41, all one thing. Yep. And one of the posts that you gave about how this is going to start to serve maybe larger projects and different types of projects more, some of the key features that you noted specifically were partial clone, sparse checkout, and background maintenance. Of those three, which one do you think we could dive into a little bit first to talk about why you think it is one of the greatest new features? I guess those three you mentioned are not super new to 2.41. But they are something that I've been thinking about in terms of like, if you really want to get to that next level of scale where vanilla Git isn't working for you, then this is the next step of how things work. Gotcha. So partial clone is the one that I think is the easiest for people to grasp because it's something you can just do at clone time. It's the only time you need to make a change and everything else works the same. It's just the trade-offs are different. Again, I mentioned at a clone, you're downloading every single reachable object. The idea is like, I want to get the tip refs. And I have to get their entire commit history and all the objects that are reachable from them. So that way, after my clone is done, I can go check out any version of the history. That's how Git is built. It's fully distributed. I don't need to rely on that server anymore to do my job. I can do all my other things. Partial clone breaks that complete independence by saying, let me just get the objects I care about. So the default, I think, is to use a blobless partial clone, which means I don't have every version of every file but I still have every commit and I still have every tree, which is the version of a directory. So that's what initially downloads. And then you do your initial checkout at tip. Oh, now it actually downloads all of those blobs that are for that, just the tip versions. Those won't have any deltas probably because they're all from different files and you put those on disk. Now your repository works. Say I want to check out a different branch. 
some of the files will be in common, some of them will be different, and you actually need to go to the server again at that point to go get those missing files. And so you're essentially saying, I want my initial clone to be really fast. I'm willing to pay a little extra later for just the things I need. Mm-hmm. And this is really critical for really big repos where your history is so long, you have a million commits, and you're really not going to need those older versions. You just want to be able to do your work and you want to move forward from this point. And yeah, checkout is going to be a little bit slower here and there. Maybe you want to get blamed. It's quite a bit slower because it has to get every version of that file in history. But then that stuff is local. And if you do it again, it's going to be fast. So it's just understanding where that trade-off is. And the idea, like, if I go on a plane and I don't have Wi-Fi, I might not be able to do something. I might not be able to change my checkout. I could still work forward from where I'm at, but I can't necessarily go back to a different branch that I haven't fully gotten all the data for. Again, breaking that fully distributed idea that you have absolutely everything you need. But that is something that's super important for people that maybe it's too expensive to do that initial clone, right? Maybe there's something deep in the history that made your repository giant and you did these large binary things and you don't want to go rewrite history to get rid of them, but you fixed your tip. Your tip is now a much smaller repository. Partial clone is a great way to fix that by saying, okay, I'm not going to download that big file that's way on the history and not at tip anymore. I will only download it if some actually need it. And that way you can solve those kinds of problems. And so this is really good for repos with a lot of history. And you're very unlikely to do deep file history stuff on your client machine. You can go use the web for that, right? The web's going to have really fast file history if you need it to, you know, something like github.com. Do you find that this feature was something that was born out of an ingrown need because you guys expected projects to grow big or was it more an observed thing maybe from misuse or Mm -hmm. incorrect use? This was absolutely something that grew out of our absolute need when we were talking about getting the Windows monorepo onto Git. We knew that not only could we not have the full history of every file in the Windows repo be downloaded at a reasonable amount of time, But also, we can't even have every file at tip. If you're going to do a full clone, it's going to be at the very start, it was 100 gigabytes of packed Git data. And then you do the initial checkout and it blows up to 300 gigabytes in your working directory. That's like the size we're talking about of these big monorepos. But if we say, hey, let's remove the blob history, that 100 gigabytes goes down to something like 10 gigabytes or a gigabyte. I misremember the numbers right now, but it was, again, it was something that's still not super fast, but reasonable. And that cost of having the commit history and the tree history was super valuable to make sure that you could do things like look at the history or do a checkout of a different branch or do a merge. But then that idea of like, okay, now what do I actually need at the tip? That's where Windows used a virtualized file system approach, but that was very heavy handed and was necessary for their build system where things are a bit messy after working in the thing for 40 years. And they don't necessarily have a concrete way of saying, oh, I need these directories. And that's it. I know I'm going to be able to build from those. Mm -hmm. The build system dynamically discovers as it's going along. And so the virtualized file system fills in it necessary. So it's saying, oh, I don't have this file. Let me go ask Git for it. And Git will go download it and put it on disk for me. That was the approach there. Gotcha. Okay. But that's not super widely available because it's really not for a typical person. But one thing you can do that is in core Git, you mentioned in your list, is sparse checkout. Sparse checkout being the way to take your working directory and focus it on only the files you actually need to do your work. You're contributing to a monorepo. When you do a pull request and you run CI, it's doing the whole suite of things. 
but you as a developer don't need to have XYZ from a different component. You can focus on your component, build the things locally, and then let CI handle those deep integrations with all the other components. Focus on your piece as much as possible. And that way, with partial clone and sparse checkout together, you don't have the old versions that you don't need, and you don't have the files at even at tip that you don't need. You only care about these things that are right in your focus zone. Do you see partial clone ever stepping into like a role-based sense of authority where it's this team can work on this clonable set of blobs and this team can work on those set? There is a version of partial clone. I said blobless, right? We're saying just ignore all blobs. Don't send them to me until I ask for them, right? I will ask for them dynamically. But there is a version that essentially combines the sparse checkout definition and says, oh, I care about everything in these directories. Give me everything in those directories throughout history. The difficulty is that actually serving such the clones like that, it's very CPU expensive. And we haven't really gone through a super high demand for that, you know, as being something better than partial clone, uh, sort of blobless clones. And it's super expensive to try to do something fast. We have this thing called reachability bitmaps, which I mentioned a little bit in my blog series about how we use these bitmaps to kind of quickly compute which objects you need from the server side when the client's trying to fetch or clone. And it allows us to not have to do a bunch of this graph walking stuff through the object store. Let me go grab a commit. Let me grab its tree. Let's parse it and walk. The bitmaps do a really fast way of uh, solving that. But as soon as you say, oh, but restrict us to these paths, suddenly the, those bitmaps don't work because uh, yeah, the bitmaps are not focused on paths level scopes. Right. There's talk about, okay, what if we create some bitmaps that are path scoped and then I can take the union of some bitmaps, but it's theoretical at most right now. And it, from what I've seen, the cost of just filling in the history of files when you need them is not that much more expensive than doing something like this. So, you know, blobless clones are the things that we've been seeing people use significantly. Can you talk to me a little bit about Scalar? It's already out and people can use it to handle their larger projects, right? I know it used to be sort of like a virtual file system as well. You're right. It was definitely born out of that. That's the thing, right? So back up my team was at Microsoft. We were working on the virtual file system for Git, which was the solution for the Microsoft Windows monorepo. We reshifted focus. Windows was on Git. They're happy enough. They're doing things. We're making improvements, but they're not the focus anymore. Office is coming. We need to worry about getting them on board. We had a different set of challenges, and one of which was making a cross-platform to macOS because they ship macOS applications of their Office products. So macOS developers are a big part of their modern repo developers. So we tried to build a version of VFS or Git for macOS. That was kind of like, let's just drag and drop the solution for Windows, bring it over to Office, we'll be done. There were a bunch of hurdles with that, including a deprecation that caused that to not be a technically feasible way forward on the macOS side, but also at the root of it, a difference in their modern repos that made things just not work quite right. Office has this really componentized build system where they know, hey, each directory at root is its own build unit. And we control the dependencies between those units really carefully. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that means that their build system could pick what they need in advance, but also it means that they have over 2,000 directories in their root folder. And something like that just looks really bad. When you're virtualizing it, you go to Explorer and you look at it and you say, oh, it looks like I have 2,000 directories in here. I get lost trying to find the things I actually care about, which is not the experience they had before. Could this be similar to kind of like how Yarn Workspaces is set up if you're familiar with the root level independently built packages? 
I am not familiar with yarn. That's probably a very good uh, metaphor. Yeah. Gotcha. And so like within each project, they have their own build system management of dependencies in there, but like across these boundaries, they're very restrictive. Users weren't expecting it to look like it did when it was in the virtualized file system because they wanted, I just want the thing I'm focusing on. If I'm a word developer, I don't want to see all these PowerPoint directories. I don't want to see Excel. So we started getting involved with Sparse Checkout as an alternative to using the virtual file system. And we needed to build a new Sparse Checkout built-in so it was easier to use. We needed to make a new pattern matching algorithm so it was fast enough. But essentially what we did is we took the bones of VFS for Git. We removed the virtualized file system part, but then kept all the other pieces, like how we were doing essentially our version of Partial Clone, which was custom to Azure DevOps. It had its own implementation there. We had a background maintenance that was in there that we needed. We were reusing and we brought that all over and then essentially realized the architecture here is wrong. Since we don't need to do virtualized file system, we don't need a running process alive all the time, ready to get a fired event from the file system saying, where's this content? So what we started doing was taking things from that C-sharp managed process layer and sticking them into our fork of Git. And the more and more we did that, we said, hey, wait a minute, this is not super critical to like, this isn't just a thing for us. This is a thing we could make for everybody. And so while if you use the Microsoft Git fork with Azure DevOps, it will give you these custom things that are specific to that environment. We were able to find a way to upstream the bare bones of Scalar, the very fundamentals of it. So that way it's now available from Git 2.38 and later to every Git client. So not only is the Git executable installed on your machine, but the Scalar executable is as well. Automatically? Automatically. If you've installed a newer version of Git, Scalar is on your machine. The way I like to say about like what it has morphed into is that Scalar clone is Git clone with all the bells and whistles on. By default, it'll give you a blobless partial clone. By default, it'll start you in a sparse checkout. And by default, it'll start up background maintenance. These are all features you could enable via Git if you know the right custom options to do, but we can never make Git clone do that. Git clone, people are expecting it to work the way it works. And so this is kind of a way to say, hey, we've built this for ourselves, but if we put it here in Git, then more people can use it. It's a way to get the best and most exciting scale features involved. Yeah, if you didn't want to sparse checkout, then you need to do something different or you need to disable it once you've cloned it. Or if you didn't want a partial clone, then maybe you shouldn't have been doing scalar clone. You could just do a regular Git clone. But it's assuming, hey, I've got a big repo. Give me everything I need to make sure that it's going to be as quick as possible to bootstrap and I'm going to be as efficient as possible once I'm in there. It even does some custom optional Git config on your repo to say, hey, this cool feature, you probably want the file system monitor enabled. That's going to make your Git statuses really fast. You're going to want to make sure you do these extra XYZ things. That So you can find that list in the code. There's a lot of cool stuff in there about these things could be on by default. But for historical reasons, we've left them off for the regular Git clone. But for Scalar clone, we can turn those knobs to 11. Talk to me a little bit about the file system monitor. What is that? Why would I want it? Oh, this is a really cool thing. My colleague, Jeff Hostetler, upstreamed this. This is, again, one thing we figured out with VFS for Git is that we had to integrate with a file system driver that essentially was sending us every single file system event saying, somebody's reading here, somebody's writing here. And we were keeping that up in memory. And that allowed us to say, hey, wait a minute, if we have all this data about what's going on in the file system, could we tell Git about it instead of Git needing to go to the file system itself? Git is going to say, I've got a copy of what I think the file system's at in my index, but if somebody runs Git status, I need to go double check. Has anything changed since the last time somebody ran a status? And so it's going to start groveling the file system and it's going to start reading directories. And if the directories change, it has to go dig into it deeper. 
And that can be really expensive, right? What Jeff did was he built a new daemon inside of Git saying, it's again, another longer process running that can spin up in the background that says, I want to listen to all the file system events from your working directory. And so if you change a file, then the operating system tells Git, hey, by the way, this file changed, and it keeps a list of those things. And so then when the Git status runs, it can say, hey, by the way, somebody just asked for me status, what's changed? The file system monitor can say, oh, you are at this time, your last index was at this timestamp. I've seen these three events since then. And the status can say, great, I'll use those three events. I'll incorporate them into my view of the world. I won't touch the file system. And so I'm going to operate a lot faster. And so this prevents this really long tail of Git status groveling the file system and taking a long time because those operations, they're very incremental. You can't really stream them nicely. You can't parallelize them nicely, but they are going all the way to disk. And it's definitely the slowest thing Git does a lot of times. So this really speeds it up. We have a Mac OS and a Windows version of this. Now, the one caveat is the Linux file system monitor does not exist yet, partly because of how the iNotify has a size limit of how many inodes you can do and the fan notify is like at the root we haven't figured out what's the right interface for interacting with linux but the good news is that git was built for linux in mind so actually the reason fs monitor exists in these other platforms is actually really important because the file system doesn't work the way git expects it to or the way git was optimized for so it's making up for that deficiency and linux is still pretty fast without the fs monitor because of the way git is designed to work on linux now, do you find that feature something more popular with an enterprise audience or could anybody benefit from this? I haven't looked at the performance numbers recently, but like the benefits really don't start showing up until you have about 10,000 files in your working directory and really get to 100,000 where you start to feel like you need it as opposed to it's not that big of a deal, right? You know, talking about one of the biggest milestones we got to with the office monorepo with sparse checkout with FS Monitor and with an extra thing called the Sparse Index, all those things together got us to just under a second for most Git statuses. But that's still taking 900 to 1,000 milliseconds for Git statuses is not a great experience. And if you're used to running it, if I'm doing it in the Git project with 50,000 files, it's sub 100 milliseconds. So you're expecting that kind of a fast. But without those features, it would take 6 to 10 seconds for a very typical case. And so that's the kind of variables. It's going from super painful to it's good. It's not terrible. If you're feeling like you're at a second range, it'll probably get you down to sub half second. It's like my gut feeling about you, depending on where you're at in your monorepo. So it's definitely something worth trying. You can do it just by setting core.fsmonitor true in your Git config. But again, Scalar will set it up for you. It's one of those things where you don't need to know that feature exists or that's the config to turn it on. Scalar just says, this is probably good for you if you think you're big enough. If people are trying out Scalar, they're using it and they should know about that's not a automatic bell and whistle. That is still something very potent in terms of improving their workflow. We touched on it briefly, but like uh, interesting background maintenance to Git was one of these things that I thought was really interesting. It didn't affect people on Linux very much, but on Windows it does because on Windows the way Git would launch processes in the background doesn't work. So the API isn't there on Windows for the way Git wants to do it. Instead of launching a G Git GC auto in the background, like it does on Linux or maybe Mac OS, it would run it in the foreground. So like your fetch finished and now it's like, oh, hey, I've noticed you've got such and such number of pack files and loose refs. I'm going to go repack them now. Like a vacuum. 
it, like a vacuum. It's going to take all these objects you have and it's going to zip them up into one big pack file. And it's essentially rewriting your entire object directory, which again, if that's a gigabyte in size or something, that's going to take a while to, to rearrange all that data, recompress it and create a new file and then delete the old ones. And that's all while you're just waiting for your fetch to finish so you can go do the next thing, right? So background maintenance interacts with your scheduler to say, hey, let's run these kinds of operations to keep your object directory clean and well maintained, but let's do it in a way that doesn't ever disrupt you in the foreground. It's not going to do something that completely rewrites everything and deletes it. It's, it's going to do something more incremental and it's going to keep all these things nice and neat. And then now that you're no longer running this GC auto process at the end, it's just going to make everything a little bit faster. It's going to be everything a little bit faster because you're never running this process. And those ones where you would get tripped up and wait, those never happen. Those would never happen. Now, again, if you run a git clone and then you go into your repository and say git maintenance start, that's the same thing. Like again, the feature is there. It's really easy to just enable if you know about it, but the scalar clone runs that as part of its operation. And that's just the first time when you run the clone. Yeah, so Scalar was really designed for, hey, I want to get started from scratch. I don't have anything on my machine. I want to go work with this big repo. How do I do it? Scalar clone can do that. There is a second command, Scalar register, where if you have an existing repository, just say, hey, I cloned this one already, but I want to get as many bells and whistles that work. Scalar register will do that. It'll turn on the background maintenance. It will turn on features like FS monitor. It can't change your clone to be a partial clone, and it's not going to change whether or not you have sparse checkout enabled. That's for you to decide based on what you have. It's not going to change anything like that. But it will say, let's be as efficient as possible from here on out with these all these other settings. And as we upgrade, at least for the Git for Windows, has a step where it will go and reconfigure all of your scalar repositories during the installer. So that way, if the recommended configs have changed, those will get updated in your repositories that were registered with Scalar. I'm not sure if we, we don't have control of the uh, installers for the other machines. And a lot of times you're just installing binaries from source as opposed to running some sort of wizard. But you can do Scalar register all, I think, is the command to say. Um, or maybe it's re Scalar reconfigure, and it'll just update all your Scalar register repositories to have the latest and greatest features as we're adding them, right? Because Git's not done making cool features. So we've got these kind of built-in mechanisms for keeping people up to date. Could you tell us about something that's not included with Scalar right now that the team is looking forward to putting out? So uh, a feature we've built um, that's not integrated with Scalar yet, but it is integrated with Git clone, if you know about it, is this thing called a bundle URI. So one of the things we had in the VFS for Git world, again, because we had our own custom protocol and everything, is that we wanted to do essentially partial clone, but we wanted to save server resources on computing what that was that we were giving. And so we had these things called cache servers that had a bunch of Git data. And instead of being in the cloud in Azure DevOps was located like near build machines or in the lab with all the developers. And it pre-computed the commits and trees packs. So that way, when you cloned, it just downloaded those files that already existed, and then we get the rest dynamically from the server. And now this bundle URI feature allows you to do that with Git but it requires this external server. You essentially have set up and compute these bundles. But you can say git clone, you got your normal URI, and then you say dash dash bundle URI equals whatever, and that can point to a list of bundles or a, a specific bundle. It downloads the object data and downloads a set of refs, and then you essentially apply that to your local machine, and then you go to the remote and say, okay, give me what's missing. I have these things, give me what's left over. So you still get the absolute up-to-date stuff that the server is saying it's giving you, but you're starting from this kind of batched of pre-computed stuff. 
And that pre-computed stuff could be, maybe it's the benefit is that it's already computed, the server's not needing to do it. If you have, for instance, a GitHub Enterprise instance that's just overloaded, is too busy with everybody doing everything, a bundle server could offload some of that load. Or you're hosting on .com, which is hosted in the US, and you're in Europe or you're in Asia, and you want to be able to get most of your big data locally to a machine that's on your premises, or at least in your country, before going to .com to get the remainder, you can set up a bundle server. So we built the feature into core Git, and that's available now. But we've also open sourced, uh, it's a github.com slash git dash ecosystem slash git bundle server with dashes in between everything there. And it's essentially a tool that will say, no matter what your host is, whatever your server is, we're going to go and clone that and create this list of bundles and serve a bundle list and then and set up authentication so that way people can clone using this bundles and get that data at a much faster rate depending on, again, how you set up your server and all that localities, depending on that. The main target we're doing right now, especially in the early phases, since we've open sourced it, is say I have a CI farm and I want to bootstrap a new CI server to with a full clone. One of the things you can always say is, if you've got a big repo, you need to use persistent build machines that are starting from an existing place and fetching as opposed to cloning every time. But still, that first time you set up a new CI machine, it's got a clone. Uh, but these machines are usually in a room somewhere, all hooked up to a rack. What if that bundle server was in that same rack? And so you're getting absolute fastest possible connection speed as opposed to going all the way across the internet to get it. That's kind of what one of our big targets of where this can benefit. I don't think the ergonomics are quite there yet for doing this with developers. For instance, one of the things we haven't done is we haven't hooked up with partial clone yet. We want to finish that up. But it is something that developers could use if they have set this up. The other side of it is the authentication story is very rigid right now. The idea that you have to store tokens around and register SSH keys and things. It's really hard to do for just, hey, arbitrary developer, go register with this bundle server, but we're working on it. So if that's something you're really interested in, come hop up in the repo, ask questions, a discussion or something, and we'd be happy to talk to you about it. One more time, what is the repo called? Git ecosystem slash Git bundle server. And there's a dash between every one of the words. Derek, thank you for your time coming on the podcast again. And like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Derek is an author on the blog, a common author. And you can find his series of blog posts and the enjoyable one-offs talking about things like Git and Scalar, diving into some of these features. Thanks again, Derek. It was a pleasure. Oh, thanks, Paul. Thank you.